Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, August 25th. In today's news, police used tear gas against hundreds protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The postmaster general says he won't restore the mail sorting machines he's disabled. And the FDA commissioner owns up to making materially false statements about the effectiveness of convalescent plasma. But first, the big idea. A symphony of superlatives played loudly Monday on the opening night of the Republican National Convention as speaker after speaker lavished praise on President Trump and spoke of him in messianic, almost otherworldly terms. They said he's a builder, a visionary, the richest man in the world, the guardian of America, and the bodyguard of Western civilization. Political parties typically adopt platforms at their conventions every four years, articulating their policy priorities and core beliefs, but Republicans decided not to do that in 2020. Instead, the Republican National Committee passed a one-page resolution over the weekend stating simply that it, quote, enthusiastically supports President Trump and the party has and will continue to enthusiastically support the president's America First agenda. In other words, the party's platform is Donald Trump. If there were still any doubt that Trump has thoroughly appropriated and consumed the Republican Party, it was erased last night as Republicans kicked off their convention. The quadrennial showcase of Republicanism began instead this week as a celebration of Trumpism, a nationally televised high-definition pay-on to a president known for his outsized ego and taste for the grandiose who is overwhelmingly popular in his own party. Underscoring Trump's dominance of the GOP is the absence of any of the party's previous presidential nominees. Mitt Romney's not invited. John McCain's no longer alive, but his wife recorded a message for Joe Biden last week. And George W. Bush is also not participating. The convention got underway as a number of traditional Republicans have come out against Trump. On Monday, Democratic nominee Joe Biden's campaign announced the endorsement of more than two dozen former GOP lawmakers including former Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona. Meanwhile, Miles Taylor, a former top official in Trump's Department of Homeland Security, launched a new group called Repair 45, through which current and former administration officials will work to defeat the president and publish commentaries about him. Taylor said he has at least two current Trump administration officials helping his effort behind the scenes. The quasi-virtual convention is itself a Trump production, The president is set to appear on each of the four nights of primetime programming, concluding with his formal acceptance speech Thursday from the South Lawn of the White House. Each night will also feature a keynote address by a member of the Trump family, starting with eldest son Don Jr. last night. Meanwhile, one of the command centers where Republican officials are orchestrating the television production is set up in the Trump Hotel in Washington. The former reality TV star has taken a personal interest in programming his own convention. Two people familiar with the planning told Phil Rucker and Josh Dossie that Trump wanted a large crowd for his Thursday night address despite the raging pandemic. So there will be about a thousand people or so on the South Lawn. Republican operatives say there's a risk inherent in their party centering the convention so completely on Trump. Doing so invites voters to see the election as a referendum on the president's job performance where party officials believe Trump has a better chance of winning a second term if he can shift more attention to Biden and make the election a choice. 
Some of the speakers last night made aggressive cases against Biden, including Don Jr., but also Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. They painted the country under Biden's leadership as dangerous and dystopian. Republican officials say there were intense internal disputes among Trump's advisors, including Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, who wanted a short platform that delineated the president's thoughts on a few key issues. There were other discussions over how to handle gay rights in the platform. And aides said there was also a lot of talk about how much the platform should get into foreign policy. At the end of the day, as one Trump advisor said, thankfully, they just decided to avoid all that. Some of the speakers last night, including Charlie Kirk, a young activist who opened the convention, and Matt Gates, a congressman from Florida, have become GOP celebrities of sorts in the Trump era for their vociferous defenses of the president. Other speakers had deep appeal to loyal viewers of Fox News and other members of Trump's base, including Mark and Patty McCloskey, that St. Louis couple who pointed guns at Black Lives Matter demonstrators passing by their house and now face a felony charge. Kimberly Guilfoyle, the former Fox personality who works on the Trump campaign and is the girlfriend of Don Jr., gave a particularly fiery, caffeinated, intense, whatever you want to call it, address in which she excoriated rioters and human sex drug traffickers across America. She cast her boyfriend's father as the nation's savior. As she put it, he emancipates and lifts you up. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, what started last night as a peaceful demonstration in Kenosha, Wisconsin, swiftly evolved into chaos. Jacob Blake has survived surgery and is in serious condition after being shot by police in front of his kids. As witnesses say, he tried to leave after breaking up a domestic dispute. A few hundred demonstrators gathered in the square outside the Kenosha County Courthouse around 6.30 p.m. The scene was peaceful. The crowd was chanting and holding signs. But then a citywide curfew neared and sheriff's deputies appeared in riot gear and lined the sidewalk in front of the courthouse. At 8 p.m., when the curfew began, two military vehicles rolled to the corner of the square and police ordered the crowd to disperse immediately. When the crowd didn't budge, police unleashed tear gas. Then some protesters hurled full water bottles toward the officers and set off firecrackers. Then it got messier. Blake's shooting will now be independently investigated thanks to a 2014 law in Wisconsin. Instead of being investigated by the police department itself, Blake's case will be reviewed by the Wisconsin Department of Justice. The state passed that law after the 2004 death of Michael Bell Jr., a black man who was also shot by police in Kenosha, also in front of his wife and daughter. The law was championed by the late Michael Bell Jr.'s father, Mike Bell Sr., who was in the streets of downtown Kenosha last night holding a picture of his son and reliving his own tragedy. Thanks to that law, Wisconsin became the first state in the country to require an independent investigation anytime a police officer kills someone in the line of duty. It was heralded at the time by police reform activists as a way to hold cops accountable. But six years on, Bell and other reform advocates say the law still does not go far enough. Few investigations in the last five years have led to any charges against officers who have killed members of the public. That's part of the rationale for why Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, is calling lawmakers back into a special session in Madison to take action on a package of bills about police brutality. Evers's proposals would ban police chokeholds and no-knock search warrants and make it harder for overly aggressive officers to just jump from one department to another. 
But Republicans control the state legislature, and they don't see eye to eye with Evers on criminal justice, and they say those ideas are dead on arrival. Republican Speaker Robin Voss said he's forming his own task force to look at police policies, but said it will typically take several months for a task force to develop any recommendations after the election, he said. Number two, Louis DeJoy, the billionaire GOP mega donor who Trump installed atop the Postal Service in June, told the House Oversight Committee during a contentious six-hour hearing on Monday that the U.S. Postal Service will not undo many of the cost-cutting maneuvers that he instituted earlier in the summer, even as DeJoy repeated his promise to restore mail processing capacity before the November election. DeJoy said that nearly 700 high-speed mail sorting machines that he had removed across the country since taking over will not be reinstalled. Neither, he said, will dozens of blue collection boxes that have been ripped up around the country. Last month, DeJoy mandated that U.S. mail trucks that transport mail from processing facilities to distribution centers must adhere to stricter schedules, leaving mail behind if they're running late or if it's yet to be sorted. Less mail gets sorted when you take away the sorting machines. DeJoy also ordered that mail handlers depart for their routes sooner, even if mail hadn't arrived for them to deliver. These moves and others, according to dozens of agency employees who have talked to us and postal experts, are causing multi-day delays in localities across the country. They've ensnared ballots in midsummer primary contests. They've caused food to rot inside packages in Los Angeles. And they've deprived residents in poor parts of Philadelphia of getting any mail at all for weeks at a time. There are lots of stories of egregious slowdowns like this. DeJoy told Congressman Jerry Connolly, a Democrat from Virginia, that he has contacted people close to Trump and the re-election campaign to ask that the president stop discussing the Postal Service because it's making it harder for him to advance their shared agenda from the inside. Jim Cooper, congressman from Tennessee, asked DeJoy if his backup plan, if all this goes south, is to get pardoned like Roger Stone for implementing Trump's agenda. DeJoy declined to answer one way or another. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, congresswoman from Florida, noted that there are several machines at postal processing plants in her district that postal workers have told her need to be restored to improve delivery times. During the hearing, she showed a picture of one machine with its power cord literally dangling from the ceiling. She asked, would DeJoy let plant managers plug that machine back in since they say that that's what's needed and that's what would speed up delivery of prescription drugs for seniors in her district? He answered bluntly, no. Congresswoman Katie Porter from California asked DeJoy if he knew the price of multiple routine postage items. He didn't. The only two he could name were the price of a first-class stamp, which costs 55 cents, and the weight limit for priority mail, 70 pounds. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York asked DeJoy to provide the committee access to his calendar from the date when he started as Postmaster General. He balked at that request and said he doesn't want to set a precedent for his calendar needing to be turned over. Ocasio-Cortez told him that now that he works for the Postal Service, the calendar is a public record. And she said the committee may soon subpoena it. Number three. The assertion was breathtaking. Out of 100 people who suffered from the illness caused by the novel coronavirus, 35 were saved by the injection of antibody-rich plasma from people who had survived the disease. That is how FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn described the blood product's effectiveness on Sunday during a news conference at the White House at which Trump announced the agency was authorizing the use of that plasma on an emergency basis to treat COVID-19. But that 35 out of 100 claim was not accurate. 
the FDA commissioner, a former cancer doctor who Trump appointed into the job, mixed up absolute risk and relative risk, which are basic concepts in economics, and in the presentation of data from clinical trials. Peter Lurie, a former top FDA official who's now the president of the Center for Science and the Public Interest, said he was absolutely incredulous and blown away that an FDA commissioner could make that kind of a mistake. Last night, Hahn acknowledged in a tweet that he misspoke during the news briefing about the findings of the convalescent plasma study. And he said the criticism that he's facing from the medical community is, quote, entirely justified. Finally, let me close today with two glimmers of hope. Tropical storm Marco missed Louisiana and Texas. Marco was the first of what was going to be a double hurricane threat to the Gulf Coast this week, but thankfully it fell apart Monday as it neared Louisiana, sparing the region for a few days at least. Louisiana and Texas have now turned their attention to tropical storm Laura, which poses a serious threat to both states as it churns northwest through the exceptionally warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Computer models suggest that Laura will intensify into a large and dangerous hurricane before making landfall late Wednesday or early Thursday, somewhere between New Orleans and Corpus Christi. Barring a major change, Laura could smash into the coast with sustained winds of more than 100 miles an hour. But we'll take what we can get in 2020, and Marco's abatement was particularly appreciated during a trying time in New Orleans, with any need to evacuate complicated by the coronavirus. And in California, firefighters are making some progress in corralling two of the biggest wildfires in that state's history. As temperatures cooled and winds calmed over the weekend, firefighters gained ground on the LNU Lightning Complex fire, which has been burning across a fatigued wine country north of San Francisco, and the SCU Lightning Complex, which has been threatening the eastern outskirts of San Jose and cities as far south as Gilroy. But forecasts had predicted a new round of so-called dry lightning, thunderstorms that produce little, if any, rain, but a lot of electricity. Luckily, by mid-afternoon Monday, those storm cells had blown past the Bay Area harmlessly, and the National Weather Service has now canceled its red flag fire warning for the region. But the good people of the Golden State are not out of the woods, and they remain in our thoughts and prayers. These are still the second and third largest fires in terms of acreage in California's history. And firefighters from across the state, as well as the National Guard, have been stretched thin by the number of blazes, which it must be noted come well before the traditional peak of the fire season in the state, which comes usually in the fall. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, August 25th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.